The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's very nice to be here with you today. Can everybody hear me all right? Good. So this day is intended to be of benefit to Buddhist Global Relief and all of the the people that it serves and also a benefit to all of you and to me. And that's what I hope to talk a little bit about practicing for our own welfare and for the welfare of others. The Buddha mentioned this many times in his 45 years of ministry. And there are a series of his discourses in the Anguttara Nikaya, which I have here in my hands, uh, the numerical discourses. And he starts out, as he does oftentimes, with this framework of there are two, three, four, in this case, four kinds of persons in the world. And whenever I read that, I think, okay, now what's the criterion he's going to use here, and which group do I fall into? Which group would I like to fall into? (laughs) And what can I do about it? So in this case, he says there's the one who's practicing for his own welfare, but not for the welfare of others. And then there's the one who's practicing for the welfare of others, but not for his own welfare. And there's the one who doesn't practice for his own welfare or for the welfare of others. And, of course, the one that practices for his own welfare and the welfare of others. And in these, that, that comes in uh, Sutta 4, so it's the Book of Fours, number 98. And there are a series of suttas right around here. It's, I think, starts at 95 and goes to 99 uh, in this part different ways that the Buddha describes how we can we do that. So one of the suttas talks about how when we practice the precepts, the five precepts, and probably you probably know what they are, but just in case, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from false or harmful speech, refraining from consuming any kind of drugs, alcohol, whatever might lead to heedlessness. And the Buddha said, when you're practicing for your own welfare, you're keeping these precepts. And when you're practicing for the welfare of others, you're encouraging others to keep these precepts. And... So if someone is neither practicing for their own welfare or the welfare of others, they're not keeping precepts and they're not encouraging others. And if you're practicing only for your, you know, for for both, of course, you're doing them both. And then in other suttas, he talks about practicing for... um, removing your own greed, hatred, and delusion and encouraging others to do so. He talks about, goes through a list of paying attention to wholesome teachings, retaining what we hear, examining the meaning, and practicing accordingly, 
That would all be for one's own benefit, of course, one's own welfare. And in that case, he was talking particularly about the monks, and he said, someone can do that, be, be really on top of their own practice, but they might not be a good teacher, they might not be uh, very gifted with speech or polished, clear, and articulate and expressive. They might not be able to instruct and encourage and inspire or gladden others. And so they're practicing for their own welfare, but they don't have that putting it out there for the others to gain. But then he said there are those who have all those abilities with speech, but they're not practicing for themselves. And in when he gets to Sutta... 95, the Buddha talks about how he orders these four. And he starts out talking about the one who doesn't practice for himself or others, and he compares it to a cremation firebrand. So this piece of burning wood, he says, is burning on both ends and smeared with dung in the middle. So that you can't use, you can't use that timber for anything in, in the village or the forest. So not only is it worthless, but it's dangerous in a sense. And when we think about when, we, when people don't practice precepts, how dangerous that can be. And then, of course, the highest one with the five-star rating is the practicing for both. But what do you, how do you think he orders the two in the middle? Is it more desirable to practice for yourself and not others? Is it more desirable to, desirable to practice for others and not yourself? What do you think? Practice for yourself might lead you to practice for others. Practice for yourself might lead you to practice for others. So yes, he, he places practicing for others and not practicing for ourselves lower. Right next to the firebrand. <laughs> However, it's... And, and, and I can see why. You know, um, have you ever tried to tell somebody else to do something that you're not doing? Maybe teenagers. <laughs> I know if, if I try to encourage other people to meditate and I'm not meditating, it doesn't have any power behind it. There's this lovely story I heard uh, attributed to Gandhi where this, uh, there was this boy, I think he was about six or seven years old, and he had diabetes, so type 1 diabetes, serious, serious stuff, and his parents couldn't get him to stop eating sugar. So they were very worried about him. And his grandfather had great faith in Gandhiji. And he said, I'm going to take him to see, see Gandhiji. And he had to travel a long way to get there. And he came with his six-year-old, seven-year-old grandson in and told Gandhi the situation. And, and Gandhi said, come back in two weeks. So the grandfather took the boy and went home. Two weeks later, came back. They came in the room. Gandhi said, come here. He's standing there with the little boy, and he says, stop eating sugar. And the grandfather says, 
couldn't you have told him that two weeks ago? And he said, no, I hadn't stopped eating sugar. <laughs> and then another thing that happened recently, I was sitting in a retreat with a monk from Sri Lanka named Venerable Dhamma Jiva. And he's, uh, uh, he was a student of, of Upandita. It was a really excellent teaching. And one of the questions was from a Sri Lankan woman who said that whenever she meets, every, everyone she meets, she, she blesses them. She recites this blessing. And she said she wondered if, if they didn't know Singhalese, would they get the blessing? And he said, you should mind your own business. And then he explained, I mean, it sounded a little harsh, (laughs) but then he explained, he said, it has to be here in the heart first. So you have to cultivate that metta, you have to cultivate that virtue, and then you have something to share. But just, you know, chanting the blessings is not enough. And so it was, it was a good teaching. How often do we want to reach over into something, someone's space when we don't have it in ourselves? On the other hand, sometimes we get caught in thinking, I have to practice to perfection before I can do anything for anyone. And then, the, so there are these ways of being out of balance focused on ourselves or focused on others, right? It's, it's easy to get out of balance. And balance is that funny thing where you're always leaning a little to the left or a little to the right. And it's <laughs> so we have um, some, some red flags or little indicators that can go up that can help us know what to do to bring ourselves back into balance. There's a story that you've probably, you've probably heard the the story of the acrobats and used a lot in teachings it comes out of the Sangyutanikaya I'm going to read the ending of it because usually when I hear people teach it in fact I've never heard the ending uh, that the Buddha gave <laughs> taught usually the way the story goes is there's the acrobat and his apprentice and the acrobat um, tells the apprentice, now you look after me and I'll look after you and then we'll be able to do our program and, and uh, be safe. And the apprentice says, I'll look after me and you look after you and then we'll be able to <laughs> be safe. And the Buddha says, the apprentice is right. We have to look after ourselves. But then, that's usually where the story ends when I've heard it, but then the Buddha says, It's just as the apprentice says to the teacher, I will protect myself. But the way the Buddha says we should do that is to establish the four foundations of mindfulness. That's how we protect ourselves. And I will protect others. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. So you use that also to protect others. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And then he goes on and he says, how is it 
that by protecting oneself, one protects others, by the pursuit, development, and cultivation of the four foundations of mindfulness. It is in this way that we protect ourselves and protect others. But how is it that by protecting others, one protects oneself? By patience, harmlessness, loving kindness, and sympathy. I looked up the Pali, and these words are really beautiful. The patience is kanti, which you might have guessed. Avihingsa, which is not the same as ahingsa. Avihingsa is an absence of cruelty, mercy, humanity, friendliness, and love. And then comes metta, loving kindness. And anudaya, anudaya, compassion, pity, mercy, and care. Now, if we really put our attention on that in the way we protect others, how beautiful, and how much it would protect ourselves as well. The Buddha's teachings are often like that. He'll make a statement, and then in the fine print, he describes what he means by it. And it's very important to keep reading past the initial conclusion, what we think is the conclusion. One of the things um, that can tell us that we've gotten out of balance with encouraging others is if we try to encourage others without an invitation. I know for myself, years ago when I was a laywoman and my my kids were probably teenagers, I tried taking up the practice of waiting for them to ask me for advice. (laughs) Seems like forever. (laughs) But eventually... They do. And I think this is, this is one of the, the practices that we can use <clears throat> to keep us in balance with regard to tending to ourselves and tending to others. Now, sometimes I notice that when we want to kind of put others first, we're avoiding something in ourselves. That's another place to look. And sometimes we get really burnt out. And of course, that's a good indication that we have to bring more balance. That's pretty obvious. But what about those times, sometimes people tell me that when they look at the suffering in the world, it's so intense that they feel they can't help because they're too affected. And in general, my advice for that is to stop looking so deeply at the suffering in the world. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of wise and unwise attention. We need to look enough to be able to help 
but not so much that we get so deeply engrossed that we're paralyzed. We can get caught up in um, the, the experience to such a degree that it overwhelms us if we're not practicing for our own well-being. Ajahn Brahm tells us a story about one time when he went in retreat for two weeks. And of course, when he, when he goes into retreat for two weeks, he doesn't see anyone at all. He's just solitary. And even they bring the food somewhere and he comes and picks it up and he doesn't see anybody. He came out of retreat after two weeks and everybody in the monastery was extremely sad and just down. And he said, what happened? What happened? Did some disaster happen? Who died? And they're like, Princess Diana. And he's, was she a relative of yours? Was she a good friend? Did she owe you money? And he said, it's compassion gone mad, <laughs> out of control. And his, his point is worth, worth taking in, especially as we're so linked in to the world and how um, we can get carried off with um, all, the, all the attention that goes on things. And, and, and forget that even though Princess Diana was a lovely person and she helped a lot of people and it was a tragedy, that with the Dhamma, with our practice, with that stability and, and security in the refuges, our knowledge that things are impermanent, that suffering has always been part of this human experience, that we can empathize, we can, we can put ourselves in other people's positions in a, in a way that brings us greater understanding, greater empathy, but we can also be solid and secure in our, in our Dhamma. And, and that security, that foundation, needs to be strong enough to carry us through everything that happens to us in life, everything that can happen. You never know when, right? So we have to continually come back to that, to that, um, unshakable security. And of course, it's as we develop and cultivate in the practice that we really come to experience that, that we become more and more solid. And even when weird things come up in our own minds from the past, who knows where that all comes from, how many past lives ago, whatever, we can watch it. I noticed lately I'm getting more, like I'm getting these tendencies that are kind of worry wardish. <laughs> I see my grandchildren doing something. It's like, oh, be careful, be careful. It's like, where is that coming from? <laughs> but it doesn't matter where it's coming from. It's like step back, be present, kind of the mature part of the mind, observing what's happening. It's okay. Okay. The Buddha talked about a few different, he had a couple of different lists um, 
of ways in which we practice for ourselves and others. When we become accomplished in faith, we encourage others to become accomplished in faith. Accomplished in virtue, accomplished in generosity. When we want to see well-cultivated, advanced, attained teachers, we encourage others to do that too. When we hear the good Dhamma, and when we retain those teachings in mind, when we examine the meaning for ourselves, when we understand that meaning and the Dhamma, and we practice in accordance with that Dhamma, and we encourage others to do the same. There's also a list in the Book of Fives in the Anguttara Nikaya. And this takes you all the way to Nibbana. You know, every step of the way, we're practicing for our welfare and the welfare of others. And it goes way beyond the encouragement that's explicit, right? If you've had any opportunity to be with people who have um, gained a lot of ground, you might say, on the path, their presence, their, um, their energy, their mental power has such an amazing influence on us. I think we have to be open to it, however. This list, again, begins with virtue and then concentration and encouraging others to become accomplished in concentration and wisdom and then accomplished in liberation and in the knowledge and vision of liberation. So as we progress on the path, encouraging others along the way, as we look at the suffering in the world, putting ourselves in the position of the other, doing, doing what we can to support them, to help And then always coming back to where we are, right here, right here with the, with the wisdom and knowledge that we have and the continual striving to gain the wisdom and knowledge that we have not yet gained, to see clearly our own unfinished work. And to know that whatever category we fall into in these discourses that the Buddha gives, we can always change it. There's no habit that we cannot change as long as we bring it into conscious awareness. There's no historical experience that we can't override. There's no thing that we might have done that doesn't have a path to spiritual recovery, no matter how egregious. Mahamogalana was Mara for 22 times. I mean, <laughs> you can always recover. And we have to be willing to take the long view. I know for many people in our culture, it's hard to grasp the 
karma and rebirth aspect of the Buddha's teaching sometimes, but I encourage an openness to it. Um, that's the long view. Many lifetimes. And this may be your last one. This may be the point where the work is finished. One of the teachers that I sat with in Thailand or learned from in Thailand said, never think that it's far away. It's right here. Nibbana is right here. So those are a few reflections I'd like to offer and then I'd like to hear any questions or comments you might have. So, um, actually, the, um, I mean, uh, going to nirvana, like uh, from suffering to nirvana, uh, so Buddha was able to uh, reach that state, like uh, it is going to moon and coming back. So, who are a visitor, they can, he was able to teach to others. So, do we have to have full knowledge to, uh, I mean, um, give the, uh, I mean, uh, like, uh, if somebody um, asks for something, who are uh, like um, seen the nirvana or reached the nirvana has to... I, th- I think we have to, we don't have to have full knowledge in order to help others, in order to share what we know, but it's important to be clear about what we know and what we don't know. Uh, the Buddha's teachings on the preservation of truth are powerful. Um, you can find them in the Majjhima Nikaya in Sutta 95. Um, he, he really wants us to be very diligent and circumspect about what we actually understand and don't understand. And then what we don't understand, we can still talk about these things that the Buddha taught and say, this is what the Buddha taught. And it still helps people. Sometimes there are stories about people who are not enlightened, who they give a teaching and someone gets enlightened because the Dhamma is always here. And the Dhamma, the Buddha said, the Dhamma is here whether there's a Buddha in the world or not. So it's like we we point at and really rely on what the Buddha taught because it's a complete system and it really holds together extremely well. Um, I hope that, does that answer your question? I just have a brief question. What happens when the work is done? Well, what I've heard <laughs> <laughs> is uh, the Buddha has had many ways of talking about Nibbana, like the highest happiness, um, complete peace. There's a book that was written by Ajahn, um, Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro called... Um, What's it called? The island, thank you. <laughs> and, it, and it goes through all of the, the teachings that the Buddha gave about Nibbana and talks about, you know, what does that really mean? What is that like? A lot of times the Buddha described it in, in you know, like what it's not. We're done with greed, hatred, and delusion. 
And then the other companion question oftentimes is how do you know who is and who isn't? And Ajahn Panyawato, who lived with Ajahn Mahabua for many for 40 years, he, he said, it's very hard to tell who's enlightened, but it's very easy to tell who isn't. <laughs> I have another question here. Um, so you are talking about um, the example of someone who was overwhelmed by suffering, right? And you, you gave some um, tips on, on this. Uh, could you talk about the other side of um, some people who may be numb to suffering mm. and um, how to help them? Mm. So someone who's actually kind of... Um, gosh, I kind of hate to say wallowing in, but they're, they're very in, engrossed in suffering. Is that what you mean? Or what? Uh, no, I was thinking in, you know, in terms of, for example, uh, the suffering in the world, mm. that's like, um, um, you know, sometimes um, people relate to something because it's their country or their hometown, mm. you know. But um, many times you find that people are numb to the suffering. People what? Are numb. Numb. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. my yeah, yeah, yeah. French okay. accent. Right. That's also a red flag. I mean, when, when, we, when we are aware of the suffering of others, the natural, it's natural to feel it. I mean, even uh, they did these studies of, of filming people watching television and, you know, the, the, the things that come up on the screen cause their expressions to change. Um, some of the neuroscience experiments show that you know, when, when, you know, you're eating the dessert or you're watching someone else eat the dessert, the same uh, areas in the brain get activated. So it's, empathy is natural. And when someone is become inured to suffering or numbed to suffering, it's important if they're interested in developing on the path for them to take to step back and to really look at what's going on there. What is being shielded? What is, what is too difficult to feel? Um, it's the same kind of response that anger is or other kinds of um, extreme emotions. We're trying to get away from the actual feeling. And what the Buddha taught in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is we have to be present with what we feel. We have to be present with it and understand it and look for the root of it. When we're numb to suffering and we don't, we don't have that experience of feeling with the person, that kind of compassion and empathy, there's, that's a red flag. Yeah, I understand that it's a red flag, but what I was trying to ask was... Um, you know, even if you find yourself with someone that is numb to suffering, how, how do you help them? What, what, or what can you do? Like you yeah. feel that that numbness is um, impeding. The first thing, of course, with any, trying to help anyone is that they have to want to be helped. And that's, that's usually the thing that, that stalls the process because that has to be their first but that 
that phrase of if they want to progress, they're going to have to look at this. And as they look at it, they need the full range of support, of psychological, you know, maybe therapy, or they need the full range of support of looking at whatever that depth of the wounding is that keeps them from seeing. And I hope that makes sense. It's like really bring in the whole arsenal of support for recovering from, from a deep wounding and an inability to look at what we're what we're feeling and be present with it. Yeah. I mean, if they're if they're um, inclined towards the Dhamma, then to practice in all of the aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path. But they they also probably need some kind of therapeutic support. Depends on the degree. I would say. Hi. Hi. Uh, I really enjoyed the story about Gandhi and sugar. And the moral of the story, at least for me, was that you first have to have it in yourself before you can offer it to others. So that was a pretty quick resolution in two weeks. So uh, my question is, uh, for most people, including myself, we might have some pain or some limitation that when it gets triggered, we are not able to attend to other people as much as we want to. Mm-hmm. And for most people, the resolution to that will not take two weeks, like for Gandhi and Sugar. So my question is practical in nature. Well, how do you balance attending to your own limitation and healing that while at the same time being considerate and compassionate to others while you're distracted by your own situation going on? I think the... First of all, there's no exact answer because every different situation needs its own... its own methods for working with it. But we definitely need to take care of that situation. If we're distracted from taking care of others, we need to take care of this, what's going on with ourselves. And to remember that there are so many ways in which we help others. It doesn't always have to be in there, you know, up to the elbows. It, it, can, it can be our, our warmth, our kindness, our prayer, our, um, our, our words, you know, and... and if we get to thinking, which is very easy to do, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough, step back and look at that. It's like we have to have that grounding in ourselves to be balanced. And so your question is is perfect. It's exactly that, working to establish and maintain that balance. And it's it's a process. So honoring ourselves and the experience we're having, there are times when we have to say, no, I need to step back. And there are times when we can give more and we can be present more. Thank you. That's very helpful. Hello. Thank you very much for speaking today. Um, Just moving on from... Uh, what the lady here said so 
sometimes the balance of um, self-care and caring for others is also uh, strongly influenced by the views of others or by the views of the culture that one lives in. Um, and so the struggle that I have is that there are expectations that are coming from outside of me that try to reinforce me being in the world a certain way uh, and that directly contradict my ability or push against my ability or desire to do self-care. Can you speak to, to that a little, please? I can. When, when we're influenced by others... When we are looking to others for guidance, when we are affected by their opinions, the main thing to look at is whether or not those people are wise. If they're coming from wisdom, you will be supported. And, and you know, sometimes it's pretty hard to look at a, a wise teacher showing you where you're missing the point. But you can come back again and again to really looking, okay, I want to develop, so I want to know what I need to change. Because we're all going to have to change. You're not going to get enlightened and not change. <laughs> so if you're not enlightened already, the change is coming. <laughs> and it's like that. So, so really look at, the, at them, at their wisdom, at their motivation, at the wisdom in our culture. There are a lot of things that we're, a lot of messages we get in our culture that are not coming from wisdom at all. And the wisdom, I would suggest, <laughs> is in the, in the Dhamma, in the, in the teachings of the Buddha. I feel it like a weight. And you need to get out from under it. Well, sometimes the weight is racism. Yeah. Sometimes the weight is sexism. Yeah. Sometimes the weight is being a mother. Yeah. It is not something you get out from under. It's something yeah. you get to see for what it is. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's tiring. But I thank you for yeah. just reminding me to keep going. Those are incredible um, challenges on all sides, on all sides. How do we bring the Dhamma to, to that and to keep, to keep at it, find allies? Um. I know that the Buddha talked about the suffering and that it's present everywhere. I've never heard what the purpose of suffering was. The Did Buddha you have didn't. an explanation? <laughs> the Buddha, as far as I know, the Buddha didn't identify a purpose. He just said, this is how it is. So we have to work with the way it is. But he did identify where it comes from, which is greed, hatred, and delusion, particularly delusion at the root of it. And once that's cut off, even if you're living in the world, the suffering's done. And that's really what I meant by getting out from under it. It's, it's, maybe it's like too lofty, <laughs> too, too idealistic, 
But it's through the practice of the Dhamma that we start to leave behind all of these expectations of everybody. It's through that that we leave behind the suffering that is so common and in some sense natural to our human experience. And yet what the Buddha says is natural is that the mind is luminous. That's our nature. Um, I'm interested in what, it, this is a little bit to spin off from what we've been talking about, but I'm interested in your thoughts about coping with the political climate that we find ourselves in, in hearing some politicians speak with intense hate and um, instilling fear. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in knowing what you comment you might have about that. I would say first and foremost, don't, um, don't pick it up in yourself. Um, not that I expect that you would, but that's the first guard. Secondly, just know who you're going to vote for and do it. Thirdly, be really clear when you talk to anybody and talk to other people that encouragement to do the right thing. Um, engage people respectfully and kindly and compassionately and with a challenge if there are people who are falling into that wave. This is the kind of thing where is huge and it's out of our control and we can do what we can do and that's what I think we can do. And it helps, I think, to talk about it with the people of like mind so that we do know how to be in the world in that place of strength and compassion and clarity, bring wisdom to it. When we really speak from wisdom, the room gets quiet. One more question. Thank you. So I'm relatively new to learning about Buddhism, but most of what I've learned have been from reading from people who've been monks like Jack Kornfield and Pima Chodron. And what you said earlier about um, the security of the practice and what that kind of made me think about is how, I don't know if you're familiar with Pima Chodron, but she talks a lot about how you can't get ground And I think that in my life, I've kind of realized in a lot of ways, but it was kind of refreshing to hear you talk about being able to have that security in the practice, and if you could talk a little more about that. So I I really have a lot of respect for Pema Children, and everything I've seen, I haven't um, read a lot of the things she's written, but what I have seen, it seems right on the rail to me. so that not having ground, it's like Ajahn Chah would talk about not being able to go forward or backward or stand still. You know, it's kind of like 
in this world there's nothing nothing stable it's all related to the the five aggregates it's all changing it's all impermanent that solid ground is in the refuges of the awakened mind the truth of the way things are and and the purity of our conduct so with keeping precepts with developing concentration and mindfulness and with developing wisdom to see the way things actually are that's uh, that's where the solid ground is okay thank you